0: Hi, this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder. Please enjoy this crossover episode with Slanted Rants, now available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. What makes a subject taboo? Let me lay a couple definitions out real quick before I open up the discussion on today's topic. Taboo as a noun. A social or religious custom prohibiting or forbidding discussion of a particular practice or forbidding association with a particular person, place, or thing. A noun. Example, prohibition. Taboo as an adjective. Prohibited or restricted by social custom. Example, all things sex. As a verb. To place under prohibition. Example, women handling food while menstruating. In my research, I keep having this epiphany. Well, is it an epiphany if it happens over and over? No. So I've had this thought many times uh, that what makes something taboo is really it can be traced back to vulnerability and our fear of being vulnerable. So, definition of vulnerability: the the quality or state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed, either physically or emotionally like that pause that I just had there because I thought I was going to sneeze. So when we look at that definition, it's easy to be like, well, no shit, we don't want to be vulnerable. Literally, nothing good can come from it, right? But that's not really true in the reality we live in now. In fact, I think our inability to be vulnerable or be our authentic selves impacts so many areas of life that we just don't realize that it isolates us. I can only speak from my personal experience, of course, so I will. What in my life makes me vulnerable? And of that, what is taboo to discuss? My weight. I've struggled with my weight my entire life. In just the last few years, I've been diagnosed with a couple things that make gaining weight a breeze and losing weight nearly impossible. Knowing there are reasons for my weight struggle helps me a bit, but if someone calls me a fat ass, I'm shook. I'd like to say it doesn't bother me, but I would be lying. It cuts me to my very deep core every time. There isn't a second of a day that some part of my brain isn't registering that I'm fat. I fidget, adjust my clothes constantly. I hate getting dressed for any event that I'll know I'll be photographed. I'm a confident person, and yet when it comes to my weight, well, there's nothing that can make me feel worthless faster or with more ease than the perceived slight about my weight. I know I'm not alone in this. I also know that there are women with my body that have found a way to overcome these feelings and truly feel proud of their bodies and own their beauty. After two kid, kids, that hasn't happened, but maybe someday I'll get there. Mental illness. And that's going to be really the focus of this episode. When you can't trust your own brain, you're fucking vulnerable. Admitting that you may need help to get your brain healthy takes bravery and vulnerability. So just talking about it with friends, family, and loved ones. When a person is diagnosed with cancer, we don't say, God, they should go for a walk and will their cells to not mutate themselves so much. No. We get it. It's a fucking disease. We can understand physical disabilities. That's not to say we don't discriminate against people with disabilities. You fucking betcha we do. Minnesota. But while mocking and dehumanizing, we recognize uh, the condition of the physical disability. With mental illness, we don't do that. And the few stories I've come across fall into two camps. Either like, this is how I've overcome my mental illness, or here's how my mental illness is used for good. It makes me more artistic. I'm looking at you, Hollywood, in the media. I have battled and continue to battle generalized anxiety and depression. I received this diagnosis as a teenager. I was put on meds, and that was what I did to manage for a few years. In my early 20s, for a variety of reasons, I went off my meds under doctor instruction. I went nearly a decade unmedicated, just dealing with my functional anxiety and depression. Then I got pregnant, then miscarried, then pregnant, then miscarried, then pregnant, then miscarried. I had a surgery. I got pregnant. I had a baby. I was then diagnosed with PTSD and postpartum depression. Then a few months later, I got pregnant. I miscarried. Months go by in a bit of a medicated blur. I now realize that my then psychiatrist had me so overly medicated that I'm literally lucky that I didn't die from the amount of benzos I was on, along with several other meds. I got pregnant. I weaned off everything. It was brutal. I was super sick from the pregnancy. I was 12 weeks pregnant when I went to Hawaii. I got so sick. I was cramping. I thought for sure I was having another miscarriage. The ambulance brought me to the hospital that Barack Obama was born in. I was hooked up to an IV. They did tests, and I was fortunately just suffering from a really bad case of the flu plus dehydration, So an IV and some Tamiflu, and I was back in business. But of course, my anxiety was out of control during my hospital stay and the rest of the vacation. I had my son in August of 2017. I then experienced postpartum depression and anxiety again. I'm back on my medication journey. I have a therapist and psychiatrist that I really like now, so I'm heading in the right direction. With all that background, here's where I want to get fucking real, okay? I have been officially diagnosed with PTSD, general anxiety and depression, postpartum depression, and OCD. Mental illness doesn't look the way that you think it does. I don't have the luxury to stay in bed for three days, skipping meals and avoiding the world. I have tiny humans that I must care for, or they'll quite literally die. I own a business. I have a husband. So I force myself from bed. I have a routine. It's all in my head, but I have to do it in the morning. Part of it is listening to podcasts so that I get out of my head and start thinking about other stories. I recommend The Daily. It's fantastic and short. I like to remind myself of how good my life actually is. So I get over the things. So I go over the things that I'm grateful for. I don't have like a list or anything. I just kind of go through what I'm recently grateful for. Um, but then I still have to force myself to get up and start the day. This is me on medication. So that's just how every day starts for me. But my anxiety and depression don't just stop after I've gotten out of bed. No, it's just like in a cartoon. The rain cloud is above my head at all times following me around. So that's just one iteration of how my anxiety manifests itself now, I'd like to go to this outline on Healthline.com, 11 Signs and Symptoms of Anxiety Disorders, written by Erica Jolson, and this is as of April 10th of 2018. So many people experience anxiety at some point in their lives. In fact, anxiety is a very normal response to stressful life events like moving, changing jobs, or having financial troubles. However, when symptoms of anxiety become larger than the events that triggered them and begin to interfere with your life, they could be signs of an anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorders can be debilitating, but they can be managed with proper help from a medical professional. Recognizing the symptoms is the first step. Excessive Worrying. One of the most common symptoms of an anxiety disorder is excessive worrying. The worrying associated with anxiety disorders is disproportionate to the events that trigger it and typically occurs in response to normal everyday situations. To be considered a sign of generalized anxiety disorder, the worrying must occur on most days for at least six months and be difficult to control. The worrying must also be severe and intrusive, making it difficult to concentrate and accomplish daily tasks. People under the age of 65 are at the highest risk of generalized anxiety disorder, especially those who are single, have a lower socioeconomic status, and have many life stressors. In summary, excessive worrying about daily matters is a hallmark of generalized anxiety disorder, especially if it is severe enough to interfere with daily life and persists almost daily for at least six months. Feeling agitated. When someone is feeling anxious, part of their uh, nervous system goes into overdrive. This kicks off a cascade of effects throughout the body, such as racing pulse, sweaty palms, shaking hands, dry mouth. These symptoms occur because the brain believes you have sensed danger and is preparing your body to react to the threat. Your body uh, shunts blood away from your digestive system and toward your muscles in case you need to run or fight. It also increases your heart rate and heightens your senses. While these effects would be helpful in the case of a true threat, they can be debilitating if the fear is all in your head. Some research even suggests that people with anxiety disorders are not able to reduce their arousal as quickly as people without anxiety disorders, which means they may feel the effects of anxiety for a longer period of time. In summary, rapid heartbeat, sweating, shaking, and dry mouth are all common symptoms of anxiety. People with anxiety disorders may experience this type of arousal for extended periods of time. Restlessness Restlessness is another common symptom of anxiety, especially in children and teens. When someone is experiencing restlessness, they often describe it as feeling on edge or having an uncomfortable urge to move. One study in 128 children diagnosed with anxiety disorders found that 74% reported restlessness as one of their main anxiety symptoms. While restlessness does not occur in all people with anxiety, it is one of the red flags doctors frequently look for when making a diagnosis. If you experience restlessness on the majority of days for more than six months, it may be a sign you have an anxiety disorder. Fatigue. Becoming easily fatigued is another potential symptom of generalized anxiety disorder. The symptom can be surprising to some, and as anxiety is commonly associated with hyperactivity or arousal. Yep, that'll zap you real fast. I digress. For some, fatigue can follow an anxiety attack, while for others, the fatigue can be chronic. Yep. It's unclear whether the fatigue is due to other common symptoms of anxiety, such as insomnia or muscle tension, or whether it may be treated or related to the hormonal effects of chronic anxiety. However, it is important to note that fatigue can also be a sign of depression or other medical conditions, so fatigue alone is not enough to diagnose an anxiety disorder. Um, me, Ashley here speaking, anxiety and depression are like best friends. They love to prop each other up. Difficulty concentrating. Many people with anxiety report having difficulty concentrating. One study, including 157 children and teens with generalized anxiety disorder, found that more than two-thirds had difficulty concentrating. Another study in 175 adults with the same disorder found that almost 90% reported having difficulty concentrating. The worse their anxiety was, the more trouble they had. Some studies show that anxiety can interrupt working memory, a type of memory responsible for holding short-term information. This may help explain the dramatic decrease in performance people often experience during periods of high anxiety. However, difficulty concentrating can also be a symptom of other medical conditions such as an attention deficit disorder or depression. So it is not enough evidence to diagnose as an anxiety disorder on its own. Irritability fun. Most people with anxiety disorders also experience excessive irritability. According to one recent study, including over 6,000 adults, more than 90% of those with generalized anxiety disorder reported feeling highly irritable during periods when their anxiety disorder was at its worst. Compared to self-reported worriers, young and middle-aged adults with generalized anxiety disorder reported more than twice as much irritability in their day-to-day lives. Given that anxiety is associated with high arousal and excessive worrying, it is not surprising that irritability is a common uh, symptom. Tense muscles. Hear that, Neck? Having tense muscles on most days of the week is another frequent symptom of anxiety. While tense muscles may be common, it is not fully understood why they're associated with anxiety. It is possible that muscle tenseness itself increases feelings of anxiety, but it is also possible that the anxiety leads to increased muscle tenseness um, or a third factor causes both. I'm going to go ahead and and say when you're just so tightly wound up, you physically get tightly wound up and it hurts. Interestingly, treating muscle tension with muscle relaxation therapy has been shown to reduce worry in people with generalized anxiety disorder. Some studies even show it can be as effective as cognitive behavioral therapy. Trouble falling or staying asleep? Hola, sleep disturbances disrupt. Disrupt? I cannot say that. There's always a fucking word everywhere. Disrupt. Disruptances, disruptance, I can't say it, being disturbed while you're fucking sleeping, uh, is strongly associated with anxiety disorders. Waking up in the middle of the night and having trouble falling asleep are the two most commonly reported problems. Yup. Some research suggests that having insomnia during childhood may even be linked to developing anxiety later in life. Okay, no joke. I remember the day before kindergarten starting being so fucking scared that I would not wake up in the morning as if my mother would just let me roll through the first day of school. Um, I was so anxious about it. I got myself so worked up. I was hyperventilating. I think it was my first panic attack that I registered. I didn't fall asleep until almost two o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't let my poor mother leave my bed. So then self-fulfilling prophecy, I was exhausted for my first day of kindergarten and it was absolutely miserable. So I 100% agree that children that struggle with insomnia are at increased risk because, yeah, I was diagnosed in my teens with a generalized anxiety disorder. I didn't need to wait until 26. Back to my research. Some research suggests that having insomnia during childhood may even be linked to developing anxiety later in life. A study following nearly 1,000 children over 20 years found that having insomnia in childhood was linked to a 60% increased risk of developing an anxiety disorder by age 26. Yeah, hold my beer. Got that shit locked down by the time I was 16. While insomnia and anxiety are strongly linked, it is unclear whether insomnia contributes to anxiety. Yes, it does. If anxiety contributes to insomnia. Yes, it does. Or both. Yes, I will agree with both. What is known is that when the underlying anxiety disorder is treated, insomnia often improves as well. Yep, turn off that brain. it can sleep. Panic attacks Oh fucking joy. You've probably seen these on in TV that are maybe represented all right. One type of anxiety disorder called panic disorder is associated with recurring panic attacks. Panic attacks produce an intense overwhelming sensation of fear that can be debilitating. It can be sadness, fear, anger. It can really be like an overwhelming emotion that just makes you feel like spiral out of control. This extreme fear is typically accompanied by rapid heartbeat, sweating, shaking, shortness of breath, chest tightness, nausea, and fear of dying or losing control. Panic attacks can happen in isolation, but if they occur frequently and unexpectedly, they may be a sign of panic disorder. An estimated 22% of American adults will experience a panic attack at some point in their lives, but only about 3% experience them frequently enough to meet the criteria for panic disorder. So you can have anxiety and have panic attacks, but not have a panic disorder, to be clear. Avoiding social situations. You may be exhibiting signs of social anxiety disorder if you find yourself feeling anxious or fearful about upcoming social situations, Worried that you may be judged or scrutinized by others. Fearful of being embarrassed or humiliated in front of others. Avoiding certain social events because of these fears. Social anxiety disorder is very common, affecting roughly 12% of American adults at some point in their lives. Social anxiety tends to develop early in life. In fact, about 50% of those who have it are diagnosed by age 11, while 80% are diagnosed by age 20. People with social anxiety may appear extremely shy and quiet in groups or when meeting new people. While they may not appear distressed on the outside, inside, they feel extreme fear and anxiety. This aloofness can sometimes make people with social anxiety appear snobby or standoffish, but the disorder is associated with low self-esteem, high self-criticism, and depression. Irrational Fears Extreme fears about specific things, such as spiders enclosed spaces or heights, could be a sign of a phobia. A phobia is defined as extreme anxiety or fear about a specific object or situation. The feeling is severe enough that it interferes with your ability to function normally. Some common phobias include animal phobias, fear of specific animals or insects, natural environment phobias, Fear of natural events like hurricanes or floods, blood injection injury phobias, fear of blood injections, needles or injuries, situational phobias, fear of certain situations like an airplane or elevator ride. Agoraphobia is another phobia that involves fear of at least two of the following: using public. Wait, agoraphobia. But I those I being at home. Using public transportation, being in open spaces, being in enclosed spaces, standing in line or being in a crowd, being outside of the home alone. Phobias affect 12.5% of Americans at some point in their lives. They tend to develop in childhood or the teenage years and are more common in women than in men. I had an irrational phobia when I was a teenager before I was diagnosed with um, anxiety and OCD for the first time. Feet, people, like I hated people's feet. Oh my God. It was torture. Um, like seeing people's gross feet. I could not do it. Like people like brushing their feet up against me. Oh, I can't even. It was the worst. I'm over it now. Thank God because I have two stinky little kids that are one and three and I've I'll eat their toes. It's fine. But feet, that was a thing for me. So real quickly, natural ways to reduce anxiety with that said, disclaimer, I'm pro-medicine for people that need medicine. Um, I think you should be conscientious when you talk to your doctor about a plan to manage anxiety that includes medicine. Um, there are certainly people that will end their appointment with you by just whipping out the you know, prescription pad. That's the easiest way to end an appointment. So I think that you should be very aware and um, a proactive participant in your health Healthcare plan, but I am by no means saying that only these natural uh, ways to reduce anxiety should be implored. I'm all about those pills. Okay. Eating a healthy diet, diets rich in vegetables, fruits, high quality meats, fish, nuts, and whole grains can lower the risk of developing anxiety disorder, but diet alone is probably not enough to treat them. Consuming probiotics and fermented foods, taking probiotics and eating fermented foods has been associated with improved mental health. It is really interesting to see the um, whole like gut health argument, like being tied to brain health and um, specifically, mental illness. The next few years are going to be, I think, really ground breaking in that respect. Okay, so limiting caffeine, abstaining from alcohol or any other like mood-altering substances, quitting smoking, exercising often, trying medication, practicing yoga. So yeah, just being a healthy fucking human being should help your anxiety. That's uh, basically what that list says. But it is um, a really good resource if you are trying to assess in somebody else, especially I think children. Um, If you have anxiety, you probably know it. um this article, I will link to it on Twitter, but it's healthline.com and it's done by Erica Juleson and I will put it on Twitter and I will put it in the show notes. Okay, back to me now. It is my podcast and all, but in all seriousness, for me, anxiety is what runs my life and ruins my life simultaneously. Sprinkle in that OCD for the sense that everything needs to happen right now. And exactly how I want, expect you to do it, and you have all the ingredients for an impatient rage monster. That's me. Humble brag, I know. The best way I can describe how I feel when I'm anxious is to use an analogy I think we can all understand in some way or another. Maybe not Kimmy Schmidt, but you know. So, you know, when you're watching a TV show or movie and you recognize a person and you know that you've seen them in something else, but you just can't place them. Well, you could use IMDb to get rid of that angst immediately. Or you can sit and chew on it for a few minutes, trying to think about it. All the while you're half checked out of said movie or show because you're trying to solve that puzzle. Now, imagine that there's no IMDb. No internet. And you'll never know that that guy was in House of Lies. How could you forget? That's how my brain and body feel. Like there's something on the tip of my tongue, but I'll never get it out. And that feeling, it's exhausting. Sometimes I just want to take a break from myself. Then I start to think, well, fuck. What about the people around me? Then depression is like, hey, I got this. Well, Ashley, you're right. You're a fucking piece of shit. You're just a burden and a drag. Being complicated isn't cute. Your friends and family would be better off without you. Don't RSVP yes. They only invited you because you're family. Don't sign the kids up for another session of gymnastics. It's so much work getting the leotards ready, making sure that I'm up to socializing with the parents. Don't have a big party for your kid. Pizza and a store-bought cake will do. She's little. She won't remember anyway. Just go ahead and cancel your plans last minute. This stomach ache is definitely not anxiety related. Best to keep my germs to myself. The nuances of my PTSD and OCD are a little trickier to explain. They're more like bedfellows with anxiety and depression. Really, they're all a big fucking orgy. If you've listened to this podcast from the beginning, you know I was sexually assaulted when I was 18. I've never really been triggered much due to my sexual assault. Well, maybe because I'm now a mother of a little girl, or maybe because of the shit show that was the investigation into Brett Kavanaugh, but I was triggered for the first time in recent memory about a month ago. If you haven't seen Friday Night Lights, spoiler alert coming. Well, about two months ago, I started watching Friday Night Lights for the first time. Fucking brilliant show, a must-watch. God, I want to be Tammy Taylor... Anyway, I was watching, and out of nowhere, Tara is attacked, pushed in her truck, and a man attempts to rape her. She barely gets away. I had to shut off the episode, and I literally had a panic attack. The scene was so fucking similar to what I experienced. Seeing it, the way I would have had I been able to float out of my body at the time, it made me feel unsafe all over again. I felt ashamed all over again. I felt embarrassed. My mental health took a hit. And I was in a bad head space for a few days. I, like too many fucking women, also watched Christine Blasey Ford through tears. When we then watched Brett I Like Beer Kavanaugh rage against the machine, I was filled with rage. I I just couldn't believe that in the same day the same people were hearing two completely different stories. Of course... The patriarchy was at work and ensured Brett would be seen as a victim and he got his lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. We, women, we were re-victimized. Christine Blasey Ford, more than anyone. We were told that all the I believe her shit was just that. It was just shit. The real power is held so tightly in the grip of patriarchy that there's no way Brett Kavanaugh could have been shown to be a predator. Those with the tightest of death grips trying to hold on to the vestiges of patriarchy won a big one by putting him on the bench. He will chip away at rights granted to non-white men for decades to come. And he's already killed the dreams of millions that thought they may see Anita Hill redeemed someday. My mother was my age when Clarence Thomas was under investigation, and Joe Biden didn't call in the other two women to testify against Thomas. I really fucking hope that in 20 years, my daughter doesn't have to watch a sexual predator be sworn onto the Supreme Court. All of this rambling is to ask this question If we know that mental illness disproportionately affects women over men, When will we make the link allowed that the oppression of all patriarchal systems affects our mental and physical health? Talking about mental health is still taboo, and it is certainly vulnerable. I'd like to make more room in our lives for vulnerability. If we all started being our authentic selves with less anxiety and stress over being vulnerable, I think we'd all live happier, more fulfilled lives. Thank you for listening to this crossover episode of Taboo and Murder and Slanted Rants. For more disjointed thoughts, please check out Slanted Rants. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for listening.